0: In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there is a very important event that takes place. If you have subheadings in your Bible, mine says God's promise to David. That immediately should indicate some significance. Anytime God makes a promise, it's usually just forgotten by the next page, correct? Not at all. In the Bible, when God makes a promise, our ears, a red flag goes up because we're probably going to see that Whatever that event, the promise, the circumstances surrounding, it's going to be referred to, it's going to be fulfilled, it's going to be identified from there all the way through the end of the Bible. And here David is, he is receiving rest because he was a man of war. He has done a lot of conquering, of course, in 1 Samuel. Where This is 2 Samuel. He's getting up in age and he has in his heart, he wants to build a tabernacle, a temple for the Lord. And God tells him, he sends the prophet to him and says, it's not for you. And I don't know if it's here or some other place, but it specifically says, you know, you're a man of war. You've shed a lot of blood. That that event of building a tabernacle is for your son. You get the supplies, you get all the lumber, the workers, the the draw, the, the plans for it, whatever you need. You set that aside, but not until your son becomes the king, and, and he will do that. But in this event, look at the promise that God makes to David after he tells him, you're not going to do it, but your son is going to build this thing. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and verse 12, "...and when thy days, when David's days, be fulfilled..." Of course, that's Bible language for he's going the way of all the earth, he's going to die. "...when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers..." I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. What comes to your mind when you read that? No trick questions. Just don't say something like Adam, Noah. No, this has to do with his children would be people like Solomon or Nathan These kids of his that would come behind him, they were promised his kingdom. But there's something more in this. Look at the next verse. Verse 13. He shall build a house for not my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. Now, either the nation of Israel or David's authority that throne that he is currently sitting on while hearing this from God, some of those circumstances, that implies, have to last forever for it to be true. That God would say, I'll establish your seed that comes from your own bowels. This throne I will establish forever. Now the next verse, you've got to know how to read your Bible, honestly. It, it takes a little bit of scratching. Verse 14, I, and who's talking here? This is God. David's listening right now. God says, I will be his, his father, and he shall be my son. Now, if you take that literally, if God is telling any human being that somebody's talking about, he will be my son, that narrows things down a lot, doesn't it? The Bible's very clear. He only has one son, one son. Begotten. That's what the most famous verse in the Bible tells us. What John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, in some ways, the Bible does talk about God's children. But that verse specifically talks about somebody that is begotten. His only begotten son. When he made Adam, that was not one of his begotten's. He went and got the clay of the earth, formed it, breathe the breath of life into it, then the Bible did refer to Adam as God's son in some places. But he wasn't begotten. He was formed. He was created. Verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. So God talking about his son, those of us living now, whether David understood all of this or not, you and I living 2,000 years after Jesus, what do we have knowledge of? Mary, giving birth to this boy, him being raised up, being baptized by John the Baptist, started his ministry, died for us. We know all those events. God's Son came for us, to pay a penalty for us. And and look at the next language of verse 14. If he commit iniquity, God's Son, would he commit any iniquity? He, He was sinless. I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men, that's why people read over this verse thinking, well, it's just talking about Solomon. Because God's son didn't commit sin where he had to be beaten with a rod or put stripes on. But wait wait a minute. He did have the rod of those Romans put to his back. And the stripes were laid on him. But not for anything he did, correct? See how this verse it accurately describes God's son, who one day he would send into the world. Now, all we, for all we know, David only knew that he was talking to him about his son. That would come out of his bowels, Solomon or some of those other ones. But God makes a promise here. That whoever this is, what he's talking about, how long would it last? It would last forever forever. Now, there's something, though, where a lot of Christian people, from that point, they make a big, a big mistake going down the wrong road, and they assume that, well, let's see, when Jesus was here, the, the throne of David didn't even exist. We, we don't have any record of him sitting on the throne with a scepter, with a crown being placed on him, and people bowing before him, and him issuing edicts and decrees and soldiers following it out. That's what a king does, right? We don't have a record of that so what does everybody assume that this doesn't really mean what it says that it's just kind of an allegory it's a it's a fairy tale what he probably he was only just talking to David about Solomon See it does have that word forever and God's not a liar You see <laughs> Let's, let's use this as an example. This, is, this subject that we're talking about tonight is, what do we call this, Will? The reality of his kingship. Of his kingship. You can look at Jesus, and the, the vast majority of planet Earth has always looked at Jesus as the suffering servant because it's, so, it's on every page of the Gospels. How he bled, he died, he paid the penalty for our sin. But... Almost every sermon since that event happened has always just been about Jesus as bleeding and dying. And even there's a bunch of churches that still have Jesus pictured where? Hanging up on that cross. <laughs> so that, that's, that's their image of him. That's all they've ever heard. That's the only thing they've ever been taught about his existence. Now You and I live in a time where we have a pretty good example of, of something. If you only mention one side of something, you can, well, let's just call it, what you can lie about any event you want. Take any person, take any, let's just use a politician, a man or woman. Everybody does things good, everybody does things wrong. If you only present one side, if you only tell somebody that this person, and you can accurately show, well, they did do something wrong. But if that's all you ever showed them, they would never, ever know anything about the good side. The other side. They would only have one image. That's a bad person. And you can reverse that. If that same reporter, if that same news outlet likes someone, what will they only tell you about? They're good things. The things they can frame to make it look like they're a caring person, a loving, a sane person. When, if you looked at the other side of it, the actual facts, they may not be. See, in the Bible, you can do the same thing with our preaching. And we've had churches do this for centuries. There's another side to Jesus. Yes, he was the suffering servant, and thank goodness for it, because without it, we're all dead in our sins here. Every one of us, and we got we have no hope. As soon as we take our last, we're done. There's no hope for resurrection on the other side because our we would be in death. But Jesus overcame. The power of death paid the penalty for our sin. And thank goodness that we we learn all about that. That's wonderful. But there's a whole other side of Jesus that gets totally and completely rejected. Or simply obfuscated. It's not mentioned. It's omission. And this is the beginning of it right here. Part of the beginning. He made a promise, God did, to David that he would sit on the throne or his children would sit on his throne forever, going all the way out. Now, the nation of Israel screwed up. They, they had major sin come in and because of that, God even brought their enemies, like Nebuchadnezzar, to surround them, remove them off the land and because of that, that king line, it was cut off. Their throne was destroyed. That's why when Jesus got here, it didn't even exist. The Romans were in charge. It's Another reason why this verse about him saying, well, God said, I'll be his father, and he'll be a son to me, and he mentions getting beat with a rod, chastised with stripes, definitely makes us think that's an allusion to something else. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, some We're going to get into some very well-known verses. Isaiah chapter 9, excuse me. Isaiah chapter 9. Every Christmas, you receive Christmas cards probably with this verse on it. It's a wonderful verse. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. This is a prophecy about when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would come into the earth. And we celebrate that at Christmas, Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Now, right there. Wait a minute. Notice the Bible how it uses language. For it has the exact same phrase used twice with one word substituted out. For unto us a child is born. Then it repeats it. Unto us a son is given. It paints a picture this sucker doesn't fall over, a child is born and a son is given. We'll put the verb down here, born and given. Same verse, same sentence, and it, the Bible does this all the time. In Proverbs it does it. It will talk about a sin that God hate. yea, a seventh sin that he hates. And it just keeps repeating the same thing, but it will put a different subject in it. A child is born. What's that talking about? No trick questions here. His birth. Mary giving birth in Bethlehem. What's that talking about? See, It's not that they're the same thing. This is when he was a man. His humanity started here. He became one of us. Born of a woman. The language over here, son is given. Think about that most famous verse. For God so loved the world that he he gave. And what does gave mean in John 3.16? He gave his life. He gave everything. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When we talk, when the Bible talks about son, it's very likely that it's talking about the one side of Jesus that is, He is God. He is God's Son. And God's Son came to die for us. The given part. God died in our place. The child being born. Well, see, that's how all of us got here. Nobody started this earth at age 14 or 22 or 38. We all started where? As an infant. We all started that. This speaks of being a man. So Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. There's this dual nature right there. He's, He's fully God and he's fully man. And both of his job descriptions are in there. One is to become one of us and the other is to die for one of us. Comma, and the government shall be upon his, his shoulder. Wait a minute. Number one, Christians are always supposed to be out of government. So we've got to skip over this verse. And number two, I don't know if God even likes government. Does he like order? It definitely, he's not associating this with his son that he's talking about, is he? So we just, let's read over this like we do in our Christmas cards. And just think about he's born in a manger There's straw and hay. There's lambs and sheep that are bah. And there's cattle that are lowing. And it's soft and it's fuzzy. That's the feeling. That's what we get when we think about Christmas. What does the Bible say about it? He came here for this purpose. The government shall be, that's future, shall be upon his shoulder. That sentence, that part of the sentence, we ignore almost completely in Christian circles. Now there's kind of a decent reason for it. Number one is, it ain't happened yet. It's a lot easier to read about him dying on the cross. That's happened. We get out recorded history, we can read the events. However, the Bible talks about this part of his government in the future, his kingdom being established, like he promised to David. The Bible has more to say about that time, I'm going to shock you, than it has to say about any other time in recorded history. More than when he walked the hills of Judea. The Bible talks about it all the time. Even just like this, it's right in our face, and yet we don't really know it, we don't recognize it, because we're not looking for it. His name shall be called Wonderful counselor. Where do you use the word counselor in our language today? In courtrooms, in government. They counsel people. A king can have a counselor to give him wisdom. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace mentions Father God, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What does the word Prince imply? Do If if your vocation is a teacher, do you give birth to a prince? No, if your vocation is a grocer, do you give birth to a prince? There's There's only one type of person, vocation, that gives birth to a prince. That's a king. Established lineage. Now, that's foreign to us because we don't live in that type of environment anymore. Especially here in America, we've never had a king with a prince but the, the world has always lived like this. And this person, this son is given, the child that's born, it's talking about him being a prince. Now when a prince is born, usually the king is still on the throne and that prince has to wait till he grows up, till he matures and then there's a time for his kingdom to be established. Verse 7 of the increase of his Government and peace, there shall be no end. This is starting to sound like what he promised to David. A government, and it's never going to end? Well, there it says it. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. You see here, here, even in Isaiah 9, in talking about clearly when Jesus was coming to the earth, it talks about him having a government... A kingdom, and it associates with what human being? David. God is remembering his promise to David. We're not going to go there because of time, but it's in Psalm 89, verse 34 and 35, where God makes a distinction saying, I will not alter the thing that has gone out of my mouth. I will not lie. And he says that he will keep his promise to David. God never let go of this thing. What he told David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that somebody is coming from you. He'll live on that throne forever. I will establish it. God never, ever came down and renegotiated that. He never came down and said, well, this ain't going so well, so let's change it. Never. In fact, let's go... Ah, Let's go to Luke chapter 1. Let's go look at when this was fulfilled. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. Angel Gabriel coming to Mary. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. We read that verse every single Christmas season and almost not one Christian in a thousand ever hears the phrase, his father, David. If we do, we think it's just identifying him as well. He, At some point, way down the line, he's related to David. That's it. That's not what that's saying. I will give unto him a physical object. What's the object? The throne of his father, David. This is the promise That Gabriel gave to Mary when she first finds out that she's even going to have this kid. The angel goes on record to identify that that boy in there, he is going to be a king. And not the king that we think, well, he just rules and reigns as he sits on our heart. No, it's not what that's saying. On the throne of his father David. So the question is, well... What was Gabriel pointing at when he said that to Mary? Was he saying that six blocks down there and take a right, and there's the throne of David? No. David's throne didn't exist back then. So what do we do with this? Well, we read the rest of the Bible. Because what God tells us is Him coming to pay the penalty for sin, the Son that is to be given, and that's what the angel Gabriel just told her. The time that he was there to be given, to be offered as a sacrifice, isn't his only time. It's not going to be his only event here on earth. As soon as Jesus was taken up in Acts chapter 1, before he's even out of sight, the disciples standing there watching, what message is portrayed to his disciples? They saw in the clouds, it was written in the clouds, there was a voice from heaven, as they stood there and watched him go, two men standing in white apparel said, Why stand you here gazing? This same Jesus whom you see going to heaven. He's not even out of their sight yet. He shall be back. He's coming back. He's not even out of their sight yet. The message to the earth is always, You better be ready because he's coming back. And that, we have lived in a 2,000 year interval of that. We've been waiting for 2,000 years for this story to start picking up again. But there's a lot of other evidence that's been taking place, especially recently. That kind of puts all this in perspective. This throne of the father David. Where do you think that's going to be? Moscow? Beijing? Think it'll be in Washington, D.C.? Where would the throne of David be? In Israel. In Jerusalem. Which is why. When the people... Your parents or grandparents, say in the 1940s, 50s, 1930s, let's go back in time, the 1800s, when they read these verses, did it even make sense to expect his throne to show up? The Jews weren't even over there. But in the last 70 years, God has seen to it that those people are now back in the land. And you know what could happen tomorrow? They could roll that throne out and set it over there. Now the Bible seems to indicate that God's going to have a lot to do with the fashioning of that throne. He's going to establish that sucker. But that's where it's going to be. The point is, look how events, circumstances are ready for it to happen. I find that very interesting that the angel, at announcing his birth, says he's going to end up on the throne of David. Now what are thrones for? Are they for city council meetings? I propose, I second, I third, this motion passed. What happens on thrones? Authority, rulership. What kind of rulership, what kind of authority are we looking at? Uh, Let's go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We just read when he was announced at his birth. Let's look at what Jesus says after his death when he's getting ready to leave this place. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. This is, of course, he's been resurrected. He's now appearing to his disciples one of the last times. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now, for the first 40-some years of my life, I've always read that with a, a lot of confidence and all right. If I know of a friend that has cancer and I need to pray for them to be healed, this is one reason I can pray for them to be healed. Jesus said, All power has been given unto him in heaven and earth. We can pray for the power that we need to be healed. And that's true. But is this verse where God started with that kind of power? Is that what this verse is talking about when it says all power? See, my mind goes to now that I think about this, when Moses is on that mountain and God's talking to him to tell him to go back to Egypt, what was one of the signs he gave Moses? Moses said, what if they don't listen to me? God said, put your hand in your bosom put it inside of his shirt. When he pulled it out, what was it? It was white leprous. God said, put it back in there. He put it in there and he pulled it back out and it was baby flesh, perfect. See, God can alter the human body. He can heal. He can put diseases on his enemies. He can do anything he wants. He healed Naaman in the Old Testament. He healed all kinds of people. I'm just giving you an example of where I've been wrong. This verse is not talking necessarily about Jesus having the power to fulfill our needs. What's it talking about? All power is given where? In heaven and in earth. First of all, there's a linkage. Jesus is linking his power in heaven, which we all kind of understand that. That's where he came from. He created, but also this earth. Now we know he created the earth, but the Bible indicates he gave the choice to the mankind that he created on here, Adam and Eve, and they made some bad choices. And because of that, this thing's been a mess ever since. We're always kind of wondering, when's this thing going to get straightened out? What Jesus is indicating here, all power has been given unto him in heaven and in earth. He now, after being resurrected... He has the legal authority over, not just heaven, but kingdoms here on this earth. But we're just waiting. Because see, in this interval, his initial, his immediate goal is not to come set up that kingdom just tomorrow. He, there's a reason he's been waiting. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for people like us to make the decision for him, to follow him, for his church to be gathered out of all nations, We've been living in that interval, but this part's coming. Notice the linkage. Heaven and earth, and power, rulership. Are there other examples of that? Go to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asks a very, very important question. In verse 13, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am. Verse 14, some say you're John the Baptist, Elijah Jeremiah, one of the prophets, he saith unto them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered in verse 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you need to think of that phrase, the Son of the living God, the Son of God, in conjunction with what you read in Isaiah chapter 9, the Prince of Peace. A prince is a son of a king. Jesus is the son of God. He is the prince. When you are the son of a king, you're in line for the throne, authority, rulership. And he tells Peter, this is a big question, who do you guys say that I am? Peter says you're the Christ. That means the promised one, the one the Bible's been talking about for thousands of years. And now you're here, we're seeing it with our eyes. You're him. And Jesus says, verse 17, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates of hell. And he's going to build his church. He's talking about a little bit of warfare here, combat. And verse 19, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, for 2,000 years, there's been a lot of wacky, different groups who have said, well, we know what that means. We have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That, that's an important thing, isn't it? A king or a prince giving someone the keys to all the locks in the kingdom, the power of it, that's an enormous thing. You want to have this kind of power. Jesus is giving it to his disciples. But what is this? What are the keys to the kingdom of of heaven, it's a kingdom, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus has a comparison but also an equation, he's equating a couple things. Whatever you guys down here, I'm giving you the keys, and whatever you bind on earth, where else will it be bound? Heaven, whatever you loose down here on earth, that's power. But where else will it be loosed? In heaven. See, Jesus is bringing heaven's dominion, the things that happen here on earth, he's bringing it together with what happens in heaven. Earth and heaven being brought together. His kingdom, all of this is about the kingdom. And the goal is, the focus of all history is what's going to happen at the end. Jesus is coming back here from heaven with all that power that he mentioned in Matthew 28. He's going to set up his kingdom on the throne of David just like Gabriel promised to Mary, which was first promised to David. That promise has never left the mind of God. Never. See, this is why this... I I get passionate about this because... We as Christians, we only view Jesus as the last time we saw him, which was he was getting the life beat out of him. He's just getting totally destroyed, beaten up. And thank God that happened to pay for us. But that'll never happen again. And when he comes back, people are going to have a tough time identifying who he is if that's what they think he's coming back like. Because the Bible from this point on only represents him as coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. This guy has people at his beck and call that will enforce his rule. A king. It's important to be sensitive to the Bible language as it talks about Jesus as being a king. A prince. Let's go to (laughs) <laughs> let's go to First Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Oh, let's see. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait. Yeah, we'll skip that part. First Corinthians. We'll, what we'll do? Let's just talk about it. We won't take the time to go there. There are two places in the in the Gospels where God spoke to mankind about His Son and gave them specific instructions. They identified him. One of them was when Jesus was baptized of John the Baptist. He goes down the water when he comes out. What did the voice from heaven say? This is my son. Now that's a king up there talking. He's king of the universe. And he's telling the whole world, this is my son. Forget about what he says. Is that what it was? This is my Son, hear ye him. When he is on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples, a couple of them go up there with him, and they see him transfigured. His his clothes are white like the sun. They fall down before him. They are getting a picture of him as he was in heaven with his glory. And a voice came out of the clouds and said, This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. Again, king of the world, telling all mankind that this is my son. We we just think, well, I mean, family relationships, no, it's more than that. That's the prince that's going to come someday to set up his kingdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, (coughs) look at verse 23. Now, up until this point, Paul is talking about resurrection. Now, once he establishes the resurrection and its benefits for us, he gets to the idea of actually, well, when when does this resurrection for us humans, when does this happen? It happens at the end, doesn't it? Or at least when his second coming is, whatever you want to define as the end. Verse 23, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So it's just setting down the order of when we're going to be resurrected. But see, we all know that that's toward the end. Look at the next verse. Then cometh the end. The end of what? When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. At some point, Jesus is going to take over The Kremlin, the capital in D.C., Trafalgar Square in London, whatever it is over in Paris, Brussels, all these different capitals, he's going to be in control over all man's governments. The government shall be on his shoulders. He is going to be a king, a prince ruling on the earth. And this verse says, he will, de- after all that, he will deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. Wow. Don't read that thinking he just has power just to forgive sins, which he does. He has power and authority to rule mankind. This is what he was indicating when he rose from the dead in Matthew 28 and he told his disciples, I want you guys to go into all the world and preach the gospel because all power and authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. He's the king of kings. These verses here, look, just be sensitive as you read this. Look at verse 25. For he must reign... That doesn't mean that he just announces um, National Son's Day, National Daughter's Day. nothing wrong with those things. But that's not what he does when he reigns on his throne. We do that kind of stuff with our government. We have National Sandwich Day, uh, National Bluebird Day. We we just make up a million things. Different proclamations to put forward. We name a post office after our favorite so-and-so. When this says he must reign, what's he going to be doing? It says until he hath put all enemies under his feet. See, that doesn't sound like it's the smoothest transition, really. It doesn't sound like that is something that uh, everybody's happy about. See, there's going to be people here that aren't crazy about him. That's why these verses talk the way they do. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Now the next verse makes people think, well, he's just talking about spiritual things, because it says, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And that is, that's a, that's a spiritual, but it is a physical thing. But all these verses include physical governmental authority on planet Earth. That Jesus Christ has won. That he has been awarded authority over. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. Should have did this before we left Matthew. My fault. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7. Hey, this is, this is the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, we, we all know that. We wouldn't even have to look down at this, right? We all know it. We have it memorized. Everybody, don't look down. See, I'm the, I'm the most nervous one at a time like this. I was not raised in a church where we recited the Lord's Prayer. I, I, I could miss it, I could mess it up. It's possible. It just, we, we just didn't. But almost every denomination recites the Lord's Prayer. Not a thing wrong with that. Do you know what it means? Do we know what it means? Verse 7, But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of before ye ask him. So Jesus says, After this manner therefore pray. And here it is. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. What's that talking about? If you're 57 in here tonight, what have you thought for the first 57 of your first 57 years of your life when you prayed that? Because you always prayed it. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done where? On earth in comparison to where? As it is in heaven. You know what that prayer is praying for? Yeah. Jesus to come back here. And I just come back here with Plato. It's praying that he comes back here with a scepter and a crown and a white horse and a throne to establish his kingdom. This is what Jesus taught us to pray. And yet it never enters our mind that, you know, when he comes back here, he's going to set up his kingdom, Really? That throne of David, he made the promise to David and he's been keeping track of that promise since the day he gave it. And it's right on schedule. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. That's almost one of the definitions of a king. Their will, it is law. Thy will be done and down here on earth just like it is in heaven. See, there it is again, the melding of earth and heaven together. First time Jesus was here, he allowed the authorities of the world. It's no coincidence that it was the most popular, the most powerful ruling authority, the Romans, that beat the daylights out of him. That's no coincidence. Because when he comes back, he's going to be the one that takes rulership over all of it. Question, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what did Satan offer him? Wait a minute. He took him up on a pinnacle of the temple and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. Right? I'd think that even meant into the future, possibly. Maybe not. Maybe he just showed him in the past that Alexander the Great was here and the Caesars that are over in Rome those guys that are in Turkey, the solutions, all these different people. He showed him the power, the majesty of those kingdoms. And what did he ask? What did he tell Jesus? You fall down and worship me and I'll I'll, I'll give all this to you. You want to know why that was a temptation? That's right. It is Jesus' future. He is going to receive that and he... Maybe he can get that without having to go to the cross and pay for this sin. Also, it kind of speaks to the fact that Satan probably owned all that stuff. If he doesn't have control over that, how can he offer it to Jesus? Would it even be a temptation to him? If Mr. Beavers comes here and offers me the Golden Gate Bridge for ten bucks, you know why I laugh at him? I know he can't deliver on that. It's not a temptation for me. Jen doesn't have to worry about me going down and empty out the small bank account that I have to try to find the ten bucks. I don't have... It's not a temptation. I know he doesn't have it. The Bible records what happened with Jesus and Satan in the wilderness as temptation. Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus rejected it. He knows what he's going to get. But he's going to win it. To earn it. That's why he says after he was resurrected... All power has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. See, this is all his, people. We're just waiting for him to come get it. That's why we're, we're supposed to put godly people in our positions of authority. Because when he comes back, what does he want to think about us? Yeah, he wants us to think that we've been doing it right. We're waiting for him to get here and take over. But we're supposed to put the people, godly people, that can kind of resemble him or as close as we can get, people we can trust, in those positions. That's why he's coming back, because there aren't that many on this earth. And this human government doesn't work very many places. Have you ever done a study of history? It's a study of misery, tyranny, and oppression. Which is why I am so thankful to be an American. We are the exception on planet earth. Thus far, we have been the exception to the rule of 6,000 years of human history. What our founding fathers created on biblical principles to put balances and checks on the power of a fallen person to keep them under the wraps of a constitution that says you can't do such and such. That's why we've been so stable, so prosperous in government. The miracle. Go live your life around the world. In a lot of places, experience the oppression, the tyranny. When you read about this kingdom stuff, it might mean a little bit more can you imagine living under a government today where you, were, you could be put in prison for what we're doing tonight? And who knows if that'll happen here. But these, this idea of Jesus coming back to rule and reign, it'll mean a lot more. And in those places like China today that are under threat, form a Soviet Union, you better believe they want this kingdom to come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. I dare you to pray that again the rest of your life without thinking about Jesus coming back. The Lord's Prayer, that's what that part of it is designed for, to get us ready, to get our mind thinking. He's come back here. And He's going to rule and reign. Let's go to Psalm chapter... Before we, before we leave, Hebrews chapter eight, Hebrews chapter 1. <coughs> If for no other reason, that language thing that we mentioned in the f- one of the first verses we read. Remember when we read this. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. How the language was repeated. For unto us, for unto us. One was a child, one was a son. Sounds like they're the same thing because you can have a child that is a son. But biblically speaking, it means different things. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of the Child of Mankind. Hebrews chapter 1, look at verse 8. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God. Wait a minute. Why would he say unto a son and then call him God? There's only one person that fits that description in all of history. Jesus was God's Son. But at the same time, what is he? He's God. Thy throne, O oh God, that throne is specific. That's a governmental seat of power. It is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. See, this is similar. The same word scepter used twice, but talking about two different nouns. Or two different descriptions, I should say. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. What's the difference there between righteousness and kingdom? The scepter of righteousness. See, that makes me think the first time he came here was for what purpose? To give us righteousness, to pay the penalty for our sins so we could be redeemed, cleansed. That's the scepter of righteousness. And it is the scepter of thy kingdom. When he comes back to set up that kingdom, I don't know if there will be jails. I don't think there's going to be penitentiaries. You're just either going to do right or wrong, and you're going to receive the rod that he has in his hand. That's what the Bible says. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. Again, The Bible links his righteousness, his payment for sin, with a kingdom being established. Let's go to Psalm chapter 2, and we'll end there. (coughs) Now again, while you're turning, I have no desire to remove an image from your mind of Jesus being compassionate, wonderful, full of love. He absolutely is. I just think we've just had enough of that, that we need to see the other side of the mountain sometimes. And especially when it seems like on the horizon, it's awfully, awfully close for us to see that side of Him. See, I, I don't study this or preach this and think, man, I, I wish it was just the fu- soft, fuzzy side. See, he, we have a relationship with Him. Everything we're reading about it is not to scare us, and it's not to make us think. Less of him on the side of his payment for sin. Not at all. It is just to bring in an accurate focus of his entire person. His entire purpose. Because remember, all this idea of him being a king, a prince, his throne that he's going to sit on, of David's throne forever, that was mentioned in all the important places. When Gabriel came to Mary as she's pregnant with him, It's mentioned. He's going to sit on the throne of his father David. When he's going to leave and go back to heaven, he tells, I've I've won all power and authority. When he's talking to his enemy, Satan, Satan tempts him with all the authority of the kingdoms of the earth. When he's baptized, when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, when God talks about him, this is my son, Someday he's coming here. He's going to rule and reign this thing. Think of the parables that Jesus taught. How many parables started with a master or ruler, a great man, owned a vineyard. And he left for a while. We put people in charge. And he sent servants to see how the vineyard was doing, to receive of the fruit. And those parables say that they killed the servants he put in charge of the vineyard. What did they do to the servants that came to check on it? They beat him up. Some of them they even killed. What did the master say he would do next? I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. And it says, surely they will reverence him. And what does it say that the masters or the servants of the vineyard did? They said, here comes the heir. The heir means he's in line for rulership. They said, let us kill him and the vineyard will be ours. Again. The son that is supposed to come to rule. In one of those parables, the people say, we we don't want to have that man rule over us. I think it's the parable of the talents. We would not that that man rule over us when he comes back. So many parables that Jesus described that way. Describing a man's son coming back to take ownership of his property, and the people don't want him. You know what? I'll save that. Psalm chapter 2. Verse 1. Why do the heathen, so we're talking about unsaved people, people that don't like God. Why do they rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. It's Talking about kings and rulers. This is the authority of the earth. These are premiers, prime ministers, presidents, dictators. And what are they doing? In verse two, they take counsel together against who? This is maybe the strangest thing in the whole Bible. This is painting a picture. That the say picture the UN where all the earth's heads of state are located. What are they deciding to do? They want to resist somebody, but who is that person? He doesn't even live here on the earth. They're trying to resist the Lord and against His anointed. The rulers of the earth are just like what Satan tempted the Lord with when he painted the picture of kingdoms. All this stuff he said is his. Here it's saying those people are going to take counsel together. How do we stop him from coming back here? Next verse. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. That ring true? Do the rulers of this earth want anything to do with God's cords? The cords that hold their behavior down that want to just keep them from doing what they want to do, which is rape, steal, plunder, kill? That's what they're tired of. They don't want to be told what to do. No moral authority. You leave us quit telling us that we're evil. Verse 4, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Think of all the world's armies with their weapons pointed toward heaven. And God laughs at them. That's a good image for our Lord that we serve. Nothing that can stop Him. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Why is God coming back so angry? Because of evil rulers on this planet. One reason. You ever watch the news and think, how how can God just sit here and watch the oppression that goes on in Afghanistan and Libya, Iran, Iraq 20 years ago? How can this stuff just go on? This verse tells you it ain't going to go on forever. That When God looks at it, He has the same feeling you do. In fact, much worse because He knows every cry. He knows the pain of every person. Verse 5, He will speak unto them in His wrath. You don't want that. When God gets so mad that His wrath gets poured out, the Bible always says almost no flesh survives. He's going to vex them in His sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill. Who's his king? His son, Jesus, the Christ. And where is that throne? It's a specific place, according to verse 6. There's only one place on earth that has the name, his holy hill of Zion. It's over there in Jerusalem. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son; this day have I begotten thee. Talking about his son, the son that he begot. It's what John three sixteen is talking about. That son that he begat. He loved the world so much he gave him for him as a, he gave to the earth as a payment for the penalty of sin. But that's not the only thing that he does. That same person that paid their penalty. What else is he going to do? He's going to rule over them, physically in government someday. Verse 8. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. This is God telling his son, ask me for the heathen, I'll give it to you. Remember what Satan offered Jesus? The Father is telling him, you do it my way. You ask of me and I'll give you the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. He'll rule it all. He'll own it. All. Verse nine. Thou he's talking to his son, saying, You son, you shall break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Can you see that? That God the Father is telling his son, You're gonna break them like a potter's vessel. You're gonna rule with a rod of iron. That's what that's saying. Verse 10. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Who's he talking to now? People on the earth. Especially the kings, the leadership. Be instructed you judges of the earth. God has a message for those in positions of authority. This gets quite descriptive. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Y'all seen movies about medieval times when there were kings, princes in this earth, judges who had total authority and Peasants, people would go before them begging for their lives, the lives of their loved ones. Trembling with fear because they know if that king is in a bad mood, I'm dead. and My kids are going to be slaves. God says that you better serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Look at verse 12. Telling the kings of the earth, you better come and kiss the sun. Everybody's seen those images. The king sitting on the throne. And the people coming up to kiss his singlet, his ring. In hopes of what? That he'll have mercy on you. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And what happens if he's angry just a little bit? And you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. If you've ever watched the news and wondered, God, how long you let this go on and don't you care? See, he has given mankind authority for a while. It's almost like a lease, but there's a time domain to that. And when that's over and when he comes back, God is going to take up positions of authority. All authority, all rule is going to be concentrated and centered in one person a dictator, not to his children. It's wonderful. We're going to live in the most amazing place. These are descriptions of people that don't want him to rule over them. And those are never good pictures. Kiss the son, lest his anger gets kindled just a little bit and you perish when his wrath is brought up. Whew. You see, the Bible has a lot to say about the Lord, about Jesus and him being a king and a prince. It's even in things like our Christmas cards, where the government's going to be on his shoulders. It's in things like the Lord's Prayer that we recite every seventh day. Sometimes even more than that. Thy kingdom come. Come back here, Lord. Bring your kingdom. Let your will be done here on earth, just like it is in heaven. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your Son. We pray that you you would help us to be ready when he arrives. Help us, Lord, to, to live for him, to be an ambassador for him. Help us, Lord, to show this world what is expected of them. And we pray, Lord, that our world and closer in our country, in our state, in our county, in our city, that we would be followers of you, that our government would be as close to you as possible. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom, just as you taught us, we pray for your kingdom to come here to this earth, just as it is in heaven. And we pray, Father, that while we wait for that event to happen, that you would give us our daily bread, that you would forgive us of our trespasses. Lord, we thank you for everything that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.